Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. This week, I talk with Vanessa Gregoriadis, who writes for New York, Vanity Fair, and Rolling Stone, among other magazines. Before we get to that talk, though, I've got a couple of announcements regarding the podcast. First off, we are rapidly approaching storage capacity for our episodes on Podomatic.com, which is the website we use to host the podcast. That means that some of the older episodes are going to have to be taken offline. So, if you've been meaning to listen to writers like Justin Heckert, Michael Mooney, Pamela Koloff, Kelly Benham French, and Stephen Roderick, among some of the other older episodes, you'd better go and download them now. I'm not sure how much longer they're going to be there. Secondly, I'm starting to plan for a special series of Gangry the Podcast episodes. Now, this is something that I'm really excited about and, and I think is going to be really beneficial to everybody who, who likes to tell stories. We're going to start dedicating an episode here and there to storytelling regardless of medium or platform or however you tell a story. I'm looking to talk to songwriters, comedians, filmmakers, photographers, fiction writers, anybody who can tell stories and who can talk really eloquently about how they tell stories and even why they tell stories. I'll be mixing these in with our usual episodes featuring reporters and the literary journalism stories that they write for magazines and newspapers across the country. But this is where I need your help. I need you to send me names of people who would be great to talk to on the podcast. You can email the podcast at gangrythepodcast at gmail.com. Obviously, I won't be able to talk to everybody, but this will give me a good list of names to start with. And if you have a literary journalist you think I should talk to, send their name as well. Now on to Vanessa Gregoriadis. Vanessa calls herself a generalist long-form writer. She writes about hot topics in the world and does a lot of celebrity profiles, really good celebrity profiles that dig far beyond what a celebrity's publicist often wants. She won a National Magazine Award in profile writing for her profile on Karl Lagerfeld. She recently wrote a piece called Justin Bieber, a case study in growing up cosseted and feral. The story in many ways serves as a follow-up to the profile of Bieber that she wrote for Rolling Stone in 2011. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Vanessa's stories on our website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Vanessa, thanks for joining the podcast. You're welcome, Matt. Can uh, can we start with you reading uh, the first paragraph from your from the the your second Justin Bieber story, uh, a case study in growing up cosseted and feral? Yes, my second. There'll be more to come. I'm I'm planning to do an encyclopedia someday. Um, okay, I will do that. Um, all right. So, three years ago, when I met Justin Bieber, he gave me a stuffed yellow bird with googly eyes a rhinestone-studded black wine glass with a candle inside, and a card signed, Love Justice, with a heart over the eye. 
We were in a hilariously gigantic suite on the top of the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills, and he was a short fellow, barely over five feet tall. At the time, with the imminent release of the propaganda film Never Say Never, which would become the highest-grossing concert film in history, Bieber fever was reaching its shrillish pitch, but the boy himself, approaching his 17th birthday, seemed unfazed. The gifts he brought were an apology of sorts, because his team had postponed our interview several times, and he declared, We bought those presents downstairs, in the lobby! with a grin, as if an impromptu gift was better than a thoughtful one. Like I said, um, introducing this, this is the second Bieber uh, story that you've written. Um, can you talk a little bit about this story and kind of how it played off the first one that you wrote uh, for Rolling Stone in 2011? Sure. Um, well, you know, the first one, won, <laughs> first of all, the first one won, was an all-access piece. And this was a no-access piece, so there was a distinct relationship between the two because I used, um, you know, some some of the outtakes, but mostly just my impressions and my knowledge of him to color this story. What um what what drew you to to Bieber in the first place? Um. Well, this time I would say that my editors wanted story. So that was the impetus, and I hadn't really thought about Justin Bieber in a while. The first time, however, I was totally enthralled with the man <laughs> that he was going to become. And I was, I was really, like, weirdly into Justin Bieber for somebody who was way too old to be into Justin Bieber, and, like, constantly telling my coworkers, come over and check out this cute little boy on his videos, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I was thrilled when I got the assignment from Rolling Stone, which I probably got, actually, because I had told my editor several times how in love with Justin Bieber I was. Um, so what do you... Um, I mean, what do you think about Justin Bieber? <laughs> well, I all I think about Justin Bieber is everything that I've read from your two stories on him. Um, I really don't think about him a whole lot. It was funny. Um, we actually uh, Skyped with Chris Jones in my narrative journalism class last <laughs> night, and the students found out he lived in Canada, and they, they asked him to take Justin Bieber back, um, to which he, Chris Jones replied that the borders are closed and he's not allowed back. Right. Um, <laughs> But uh, I know. Yeah. You, I mean, I, I know People you talk. Some pretty, oh. pretty uh, strong feelings about him. Yeah, I mean, and like he's he's generated, like as a he, I, I don't know you. Uh, I I guess what your story really follows the whole the second story, follows yeah. this whole path of how this can happen to somebody who was so high. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and it's not just it's not just him, right? I mean, there are other child superstars uh, that this happens to. And it, it, that's kind of what you were going for, right, in that story? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the larger point that I was trying to make is if you really look at the landscape, um, that there was a time when we thought, oh, how tragic to be a child star. It's just the beginning of your life, and then you live a long life of infamy and, you know, alcohol dependence and misery trying to live up to this image of your youthful self that, of course, was never really you to begin with. And 
So part of what I was interested in when I you know, got this assignment and then thought, oh my God, what am I going to write about Justin Bieber now in 6,000 words? Um, and of course, like the reason I got that assignment was because I did this Britney Spears story a while ago where I kind of immersed myself in Britney Spears's paparazzi-strewn life. And, you know, with Justin, it's a very different situation because he's not available the way Britney Spears was. Like, he's not, like, running around L.A. in a wig dating a paparazzo. Like, he's, you know, he's in a private job. He's not going outside. He's not that easy to get to. Um, And so... You know, I thought, well, what can I say in this story if the reporting is not going to be that fabulous? Like, what can I say? And so the idea that I had was that if you really look today at who's, you know, the, who the biggest pop stars are and the most meaningful cultural figures, there's a huge number of them that were stars when they were young. And so I thought, well, this could be an interesting thing to point out and just turn this a little bit on its head and say, like, okay, even if you don't think of Katy Perry as a child star, she was one, mm-hmm. you know, um, maybe not a child. I think I said, like, 15, if you had a re- who had a record deal by the time he or she was 15? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the list is really long. It's from Taylor Swift and Katy Perry to Rihanna and Chris Brown and Drake um, I mean, it's kind of everybody that you think of as um, a big pop star. So, you know, obviously that's because we require a different thing from our stars today, which is, you know, we require, like, total availability. And authenticity is really not as important. Mm-hmm. And so... um you know, authenticity is clearly the one thing that child stars don't really have. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I just read this good Kim Kardashian piece um, that accompanies the picture of her entire self naked. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Which is all anybody uh, on the Internet was talking about yesterday. Paper. Yeah, and Amanda Fortini, who's that writer, um, says, you know, this is the quality of fame today, is really you just need to be really nice, non-controversial person who's willing to throw out, like, a few, you know, flares of these, like, arresting visual images of yourself and willing to catalog your life, and that's how you can succeed. And, you know, young people who are child stars have, like, a very deep-seated narcissistic need to be constantly photographed and loved. So I think it really works for them. You know, Justin Bieber was also kind of clearly going through a meltdown, Mm -hmm. you know, some sort of meltdown, not a Britney Spears-level meltdown, but something was wrong. And so part of the piece was looking, you know, as a cultural figure at the ways in which we and he have done this dance together. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> a lot of people yeah. go through those types of meltdowns at that age too. They just don't have a thousand cameras following them around everywhere they go while it's happening. Right. Um, sure. The yeah. um, you you mentioned you know kind of what we seek for what we what we are looking for in I guess our pop musicians today. Um, Taylor Swift just had a new album come out, and you profiled her in 2009. 
how is she, how is she different from the other people that you have have profiled? Because you you've profiled Katy Perry and Britney and Justin Bieber and and these mm-hmm. people. So how is is Taylor Swift different from them? much more uh, controlled, you know, much more kind of robotic with the way she was going to interact with an interviewer. Um, I don't know if that was the way she was when she wasn't interacting with an interviewer, but, you know, she's a very um, kind of well-put-together, thoughtful, reserved person in a lot of ways, you know, and she was like a child then. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she was 19 when I interviewed her. So I think you, she, she does look like she's matured a lot. Um, you know, she's also like Miss Perfect. So she wants to really answer your questions. It's just that she wants to answer them with like the answers that she figured out in like media training. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, I think, you know, Taylor's an interesting, I mean, obviously now she's decided to do something totally different and it's on the cover of Rolling Stone and it's like in a wet t-shirt and et cetera. She's trying to kind of make it as a pop star. But, you know, Taylor's whole thing was that she was the voice of the young woman, like the normal young woman mm-hmm. who is not stripping and who is not, you know, that promiscuous and was just a a girl trying to make her way through the world, feeling like she didn't really fit in. And the more in touch she was with that voice, the more people responded to it. So I think unlike Justin, who, you know, first of all, doesn't write his own music really at all. And second of all, whose songs were just kind of, you know, just really normal R&B songs that were then being sung by a little white boy, so they took on a different kind of import. They weren't really, and never really have been, and, and I'm, I'm expecting never really will be, about, like, who he is on a deeper level, really, you know? Right, right. Do you like writing celebrity profiles? Still, You've done a lot of them now. Do you still like doing them? I mean, you know, I really haven't been doing them very often. So Mm -hmm. I kind of have shut down that part of, like, the business in the last year, partially because, you know, this Gwyneth Paltrow thing just became such a fiasco and really just, like, was a little bit the last nail in the coffin for me with that whole celebrity profiling racket. Um, Can you you talk about what happened? Can you talk about what happened with, with, with that? Um, well, you know, I wrote a piece for Vanity Fair and, um, there was like a very public kind of kerfuffle over it. And so it really was not in any way, shape or form the piece that was being talked about in the media. Um, but, you know, nobody saw the piece because it never was published. Mm -hmm. So it just, you know, it was kind of a reminder that there's always a lot of artifice involved when you're profiling a celebrity. There's a lot of people involved. And, um, you know, to me, I'm, I'm really much more interested in celebrities as, like, cultural artifacts, what they say about us mm-hmm. because they've become so popular. Like, I don't really believe that they're forced down our throats. Although, you know, there, there are some of them who are, obviously. But, um, you know, when America responds, there's a reason. And I'm interested in kind of looking at those reasons and why 
some, you know, people fall and rise in that hierarchy dependent on what um, is going on in the country. And that is, like, really the most pretentious thing I think I've ever come out of my mouth. But <laughs> I just said it. <laughs> but, that, but that's, so like... I don't know. And then it's, you know, just fun to, like, draw a portrait. It's always really fun. It's mm-hmm. like you went to, like, a life-drawing class, and you just get to sit there and observe and draw this person. It's not really all that hard. Um, so... Well, I know. Yeah, um, I'm happy to cede the position to <laughs> other. There's been some women who've been doing some really good celebrity profiles this year, like uh, Jessica Pressler and Kathy Ackner. I'm just like, go for it. <laughs> yeah, it seems like, and 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 we, when you were gracious enough to to talk to my narrative journalism class, mm-hmm. we we talked a little bit about how how hard it is to write a really good celebrity profile that gets beyond what that celebrity's publicist wants the profile to be. Sure. Um, and I can imagine how that could um, take its toll over <laughs> over the years of doing a lot of them. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, so what type of, um, of stories are you you looking to report on now? Um, well, I mean, I I always do the same kind of mix of things, which is I do you know either I do profiles or I do celebrity profiles, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of one or the other, um, and. Right now I'm doing more in the profile realm. Um, and then I do, you know, kind of uh, tech stories. Like I recently did a story on Tinder or um, stories about some sort of, um, you know, big, like flashy scandal, like one of these billionaire divorce stories that I've done for Vanity Fair. Um and so some, some like, sprinkling of fashion and a sprinkling of, like, women's issues and a sprinkling of, um, you know, like, Americana crime stuff. So I've kind of, I feel like I've had pretty much consistently had the same interests mm-hmm. other than the celebrity profile thing for the last, you know, like, 10 years. I remember you saying that you, you love pop culture. Can you talk, and, and can you talk about how you can, like, maybe find story ideas that, you know, that are in front of everybody right now, but maybe for whatever reason, we're just not finding cool stories. Well, I don't know if I really love pop culture as much as I like, like to write about pop culture. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that it's hard to find story ideas if you're just constantly looking at Twitter or Facebook or blogs. I mean, I think that there's a lot of originality that's missing in those venues. And while it may be helpful to be like, oh, lots of people are responding to this. Maybe I should write about this. Um, You know, it's really hard to just do reactive journalism all the time unless you have, like, such a singular, amazing essay voice that, you know, people just have to listen to what you're saying, like James Walcott or Michael Kinsley or Emily Nussbaum or whatever, you know, these kind of cultural critics. Mm -hmm. So I think that, um, you know, it's kind of about figuring out what you're really interested in, like what draws you, what you think is funny and like what you will watch seven episodes of and talk to your friends about and then trying to write something about that. I mean, that's always where I start. you know, I've had several conversations. For some bizarre reason, this editor that I work with keeps trying to assign me stories about sports. 
and I've had like six conversations where I've been like, I don't like about sports. Like, I don't know anything about sports. I don't know, like, the last sport I played was like kickball. I never watched sports. Like, I've never spent one Sunday of my entire life sitting around watching sports unless I've been, you know, at some, like, my uncle's house and there's sports on or something. Once in a blue moon. And, um, you know, I think that there's, so I think there's a curiosity and then there's deepening that curiosity and trying to learn more and more about a specific subject you're interested in. And I would just recommend and I want for myself to move into that direction instead of just like running around with like a chicken with your head cut off trying to like soak up information about everything. So do you think you ever will write about sports? <laughs> I really don't want to. Right. I was really almost irritated about it. Right. Because, like, I was just like, I do so many different things. Like, there's almost no long-form writer who writes the the variety of the kinds of stories that I write. And that's partially because some of them would not want to write, write the kinds of stories mm-hmm. that I write. I think I'm more willing to write very low-brow, on low-brow topics than pretty much anybody else. <laughs> but, um... I, you know, I just, I don't understand that. Like, it, you know, why do I have to write about everything under the sun? I think that's too, I think it's asking too much. It's really hard to write it in a sophisticated way. And by, by that, I mean in a breezy way. Um, on a topic when you have, like, no idea who, like, that person is who holds the ball. Like, it's just, you know, it's too much... Um, it's there's so much preparation and research that people don't realize is getting done in these long form stories. Like you just kind of think, wow, huh, interesting. That person thought about that. But like, really, I had to sit around for five days reading, you know, horrible daily newspaper articles on the topic to kind of try to situate myself. And if it was like a sports topic, it would be like twenty five days of newspaper articles to situate myself. And I'm just not really willing to do that. But you know, I would be more interested even in, like, writing about Wall Street. You know, like, something I actually might be curious mm-hmm. about. An interest, like, whatever. Just something that, that is a little bit closer to to what I'm into. I'm just, like, laughing because I always get called to do these, like, male celebrities. And I'm just like, I'm not just not that interested in male celebrities. Mm-hmm. I just don't think they're all that fascinating. Um and uh, people can't really understand that either. But <laughs> not like male celebrities as a group, but just like, you know, there's a lot of work if you're interested in interviewing like the new, the hot, young male celebrity who's in like some action movie. Right. Is, is there a celebrity who, if you got a call, you would say, absolutely, I want to do this, if it was all almost already set up? Like anybody you really would like to, uh, you, the, you, maybe you would get back in the celebrity profile game if they oh, came yeah. along? No, I'm not, I'm not totally out of it either. I'm just, I just realized this year that I needed a break. But mm-hmm. um, I, yeah, I would love to interview Madonna. Um, I interviewed Prince last year. That was a major highlight of my life. Um, <laughs> you know, who else? I would love to interview Lady Gaga again. Mm-hmm. I think that would be really cool. Um yeah, I, I think... really wanted to interview Nicki Minaj, but that GQ profile was really uh, uh, upsetting in terms of what you think you can get from a Nicki Minaj profile. Mm-hmm. 
but I long wanted to interview her. Um, yeah, I mean, I, most you know, most of my interests do not lie in the celebrity realm. Right. <laughs> right. You t- you talked briefly about like the learning curve that it takes to get up to speed on a subject before you write a story. Uh, you wrote a story uh, in September, or it was published in September. Uh, it, was, it was called The Revolution Against Campus Sexual Assault. Can you talk about like, what type of research you had to do before you actually started going out and talking to people for that story? Sure. I didn't do a ton. Um, I did read a bunch of the New York Times articles, some of which were specifically on the people I was interviewing. Um had I known at the time that the Huffington Post is like a one-stop shopping for all things sexual assault, mm-hmm. I probably would have gone just right there to read everything. Because um, there's a reporter there who's like covered this like gangbusters mm-hmm. for the last year or so. Um, but I don't think I was aware of that at that point, or I didn't. I was kind of moderately aware and didn't really follow up on it enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a bunch of stories by Katie Baker in BuzzFeed. Um, and she was at, I think she was at Jezebel before. Um, she's a good reporter covering uh, sexual assaults. And, um, you know, a bunch of stuff out of the Columbia Spectator um, to see what was going on on campus, the way the student newspaper was covering it. But there was still a large learning curve mm-hmm. on that story because, you know, there's been so much coverage of sexual assault. But it's it's a the, the actual like release and the administrative stuff around it is a little hard to understand. Like, what is Title IX? When did it start to cover sexual assault? Why are all these people filing now? You know, what what does it mean to open an investigation? When does the investigation stop? Like. Um, you know, what, what is it that schools are supposed to be providing to students that students are saying they're not? Like, what is it exactly? What's at, what's at stake here? And the other issue is that what, you know, what schools are supposed to be providing and what activists want the schools mm-hmm. to provide can be different things, too. So I think that, you know, there's a level on which that's like, a, a, you know, you need like a little seminar. It's it's a and I you know I'm on a college campus so um, it's a little bit more kind of hits home I guess but you it, you never really know what's going on even when you're on a college campus I think in terms of what a college is supposed to do um, obviously I'm not at an administrative level but you know it's just kind of very convoluted type of you know what gets reported and what doesn't I think that there's it's it's really about like. <clears throat> if there's a good student journalism right. like program on campus, I mean, I think a lot of the coverage is much better at schools that have good journalism programs. But then also if there's students on the campus who have decided to be activists right. and hook up with this like national network, they can really propel their story into the media, mm-hmm. which is what happened at Columbia. Right, right. Um 2007, you wrote uh, the uh, the story about Gawker, and that was what seven years ago now. Um, in terms of the, on, the 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 online eating up traditional media, um, has everything happened like you thought it would happen? 
my God, isn't that story like reading um, a moment in time? I mean, first of all, it seems like ancient history, which is so crazy. Um, but no, I don't think at that time anybody could have predicted that social media would turn into this like milk toast <laughs> forum, like a gentle oatmeal bath for <laughs> the masses, and that actually things would not continue on their trollish, you know, trollish way. And there would be kind of this sharp right turn into people really wanting to, A, be themselves as commenters, B, put forward like their best, their best foot forward online, try to get likes for everything. I mean, I don't think there was even the concept of likes when Mm -hmm. I wrote that. Maybe there was in Facebook. Did I write that in 2007, that Gawker story? I think it might have been earlier than that. Oh, no, maybe it was. I think it was March 2007. Maybe you're right. Yeah. Um, okay, so there was Facebook, but it wasn't widespread, you know? Right. Um, I think, you know, obviously there's virulent commenters all over the place, but they're, they're far outnumbered by the people who want to have, like, a lovely experience online. Mm-hmm. So that... That didn't happen, really, the way I thought it was going to. But I do think that, you know, there was no question that um, things have gotten, like, far, far worse for legacy media Mm -hmm. since that time and um, continue daily to get worse. (laughs) And that's, that's, I don't necessarily, I mean, do you think that's necessarily because of, like, organizations like Gawker? Um, or because those the legacy media have had this history of putting their stuff up online for free. Um, I mean, I so both. kind of, you know. I think it's both. I think yeah. Gawker took advantage of that mm-hmm. situation. Right. And, you know, at the beginning of Gawker, not everything was up for free. Mm-hmm. But they were smart enough to get the actual newspaper and read it and then write about it. And so I think that even pushed people to say, well, if they're just going to repurpose our stuff like that, we should be getting the clicks. Mm -hmm. But I think that the, yeah, I mean, there's no question that if the tape could be rewound, like the, you know, seven huge media organizations would have played this out very, very, very differently and either kept everything on offline or they would have aggressively sued um, companies that were taking stuff or they would have password protected. I don't know what they would have done, but they, they could have done more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's clear. <laughs> right. To try to keep like what, you know, what they used to call premium content um, on their sides. And now at this point, it's just everybody's just like, okay, forget it. Like there's no way to beat this. So mm-hmm. let's just join it. So every news organization has like this arm this, like, weird little flippy arm that is, you know, essentially an aggregation machine or, you know, a way of, like, putting BuzzFeed-esque headlines on stories um, and throwing them out there and, like, seeing what sticks. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes things hit huge and sometimes they don't, but I guess that's just the way it is. Um, I mean, I don't know. I'm, like, a like an old fogey when all it comes to all of this stuff because I feel that it's been really detrimental to not only my livelihood, but also just like civil discourse, in, in, intelligent discourse, and a way of understanding the world that 
is deeper than just like being barraged by images and tiny pieces of text. Mm-hmm. Like I don't actually go in for the, you know, the new media line, which is that like if you read the New York Times online or if you just flip around news online for an hour, you come away with a better understanding of the world than if you read the actual New York Times in the paper form, because that is definitely not true for me. Like right. I, If I read the New York Times in a paper form, I'm like immensely more informed right. than I am from an uh, hour spent online reading the news. And I do read the news online. Like, mm-hmm. I don't look at cat videos. You know, I pretty much follow people who are journalists, and I read their stories. And for that, it's been useful. Mm-hmm. Like, I definitely think I get to see my friends and my colleagues' stories. Um, you know, something like long form or long reads has been really great for everybody who does this because we can really catch a lot of the best stuff. But it, the disaggregation of our stories really worries me, mm-hmm. you know, because if they're for free on those sites, why would anybody pay for them in an actual publication? Like, which I don't even know why anybody's buying a you know, a print publication at this point, if you can get everything online. Although the experience of reading in print is still, I think, very superior. So, I don't know. It's all really complicated and, like, way above my pay grade, <laughs> but it is certainly, like, a, a, a bone-chillingly scary experience to be a journalist right yeah, now. Yeah, right. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for, for joining us. On and, a light uh, note... <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Let's end on that. <laughs> yeah. um, maybe, uh, maybe the tides will turn at some point in time, yeah, and uh, magazines will figure okay. it out. Magazines and newspapers will figure it out. Oh, I do know that. Um, but um, well, thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. It's so great talking with you. Thanks. Bye. You too. Okay. Take take care. Bye bye. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, The Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash JDM. I've been talking to Vanessa Gregoriadis. Vanessa is a contributing editor at New York Magazine, Rolling Stone, and Vanity Fair. We've linked to a lot of her stories on our website. That's at gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y.
Gangry the Podcast is available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the app stores. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. Technical help was offered by Steve Cease. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.